listening to Bat Books for Beginners, brought to you by the BatmanUniverse.net. Bat Books for Beginners is filmed in front of nobody at all. to another episode of Bat Books for Beginners. I am your host, John, and joining me today we have a woman who was Michelle Pfeiffer's body double in Batman Returns. We have... This is Melinda. We will be taking a look at another five issues from Batman No Man's Land Volume 3. This was released towards the end of the 2000s and is still available now. And it's well worth picking up because it contains literally everything that you need to read through Batman's No Man's Land. So in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at Asriel, Agent of the Bat 58, which is written by Dennis O'Neill and features art by Roger Robinson. Also, Batman Legends of the Dark Knight 122, which features the writing of Larry Hammer and art by Paul Galassi. We'll also be looking at Batman Shadow of the Bat 90, which again features writing by Larry Hammer and Paul Galassi. And also we'll be taking a look at Batman 570, which features art by Bronwyn Carlton Taggart and Mike D'Ato Jr. And Detective Comics 737, which features again Bronwyn Carlton Taggart and this time art by Tom W. Morgan. All of these issues can be picked up uh, cheaply as individual issues on eBay. You can also purchase them from Comixology and the DC Digital Store as well. So they are available in multiple formats and they usually retail for about £1.49, $1.49. But they can be more, they can be less. It depends on when you pick them up. So, with that being said, is this going to be any good? As you remember in the last episode, we gave the first six issues a few mixed reviews. Let's hope that this carries on a upwards trend and not goes down. As we dig into Batman, No Man's Land, Volume 3, Part 2. So we start with Azrael, Agent of the Bat, number 58. Uh, The issue opens with Azrael stopping three men from stealing supplies from the hospital. He stops them using violence, while at the same time pondering who they were before No Man's Land happened. He's not happy with his victory. Azrael goes to speak with Leslie Tompkins. He explains what happened and wonders why he always ends up hitting people. She suggests that it's because it's all he knows how to do. She reassures him that he's been an enormous aid, but says she wishes he was able to leave the city, because she suspects his salvation might depend on it. She urges him to sleep, but he chooses instead to wander through the city, where he suffers a mild hallucination of his dead father. He catches someone running from the hospital, and it turns out to be a girl he has previously helped, named Mitzi. She says she swore up and down that she saw her uncle, and she was running from him, only he's already dead. She saw him in the casket. turns out that she had been out looking for her mother. Azrael agrees to go find the mother. He follows her into an abandoned gas factory, only to be stopped by a worker there and told that it's too dangerous. He only let the woman through because she was being chased by a spook, and he doesn't mess with spooks. 
Azrael goes in only to be confronted himself by the spirit of St. Dumas, who, allow, who offers him all the revenge in his heart, as well as directions to a boat that will allow him the escape he needs. Azrael manages to convince himself that it's a, a hallucination and goes to find Mitzi's mother. Once they're reunited, Azrael ends up seeking out the boat. It turns out that the boat does in fact exist, but rather than take it himself, he gives it to Mitzi and her mother, and they get out of Gotham. The issue ends with Azrael going back to help at the clinic some more, and Mitzi's mother seeing the dead uncle out on the river. This issue, to me, uh, it, it was a one-and-done issue. Very, in my opinion, aggressively mediocre. I know that Azrael is always a title that has a little bit more of a religious overtone, but to me, this one... It just felt kind of out of place with the rest of the stories. I realized that it didn't connect to any of the other stories, but I did dislike the way that some of the characters spoke in this, like with Leslie Tompkins saying uh, that she was worried that Azrael's salvation depended on him getting out of the city. Uh, Leslie Tompkins has never really struck me as someone in other issues who is an overly religious individual. I mean, she's certainly very kind, but those two are are not necessarily the same thing at all. So I I was not a huge fan of this story, particularly the way that it kind of seemed to be going into Last Temptation of the Christ territory with the demon tempting Azrael. It just, it felt a little out of place. And that could just be because I have not read a lot of Azrael. I've only come across him in other stories. So I don't know if this is maybe more at home in his own title. What about you? What did you think of of the storyline? Again, thought it was it was all right. I uh, I did enjoy it. I think it develops Asriel's character. I think, to be honest, the whole of No Man's Land really is a character growth story for Asriel. He kind of faces things that he's not had to face before and he's making tough decisions decisions again that he's not really had to to make before i mean no man's land effectively kicks off because of asriel's failure to take down nick scratch who escapes him and manages to drum up the support to shut gotham down so i felt that this was kind of furthering his character he's always in his storylines, struggled, especially Jean-Paul Valley, struggled between this idea that he wants to do good and his sort of anger when he puts the mask on. It's He's almost a kind of Hulk character, but without turning green, in that he's a normal, nice, mild-mannered guy by day, but he puts on a mask and he becomes an angry powered superhero so Saint Dumas uh, turning up and and kind of offering him a way out and offering him the easy way out really doesn't strike me as that much of a surprise I think the rest of the events in the storyline are are pretty irrelevant to be honest as far as I remember they don't further anything Um, it's just a a slight reoccurring character uh, in the shape of God, I don't even know her name. Mitzi, yeah. You see that? She's so kind of meaningless that 
I can't even be bothered to remember her name, which I think poses problems, but the main point of the issue is the character development. And I know that last episode that we did, I had a go at, at Batgirl for for that character development, but I feel the difference with this is that it's very specific to Asriel. You couldn't put Nightwing in here, or you couldn't put Batgirl in here and end up with exactly the same storyline. It wouldn't make any sense. It's it's very specific to his his development, and it shows that he's not going to take the easy way out, that actually, deep down, he's in there for the long haul, and he's developing a relationship with Leslie Tompkins that allows him to grow, and also she's kind of getting a superhero that she want, that she can mentor and that she can steer in a direction that these, she thinks is good, which is something that she's tried with Batman and never really had any success because he's very strong-willed. He knows what he wants and he's going to get it, whereas Asriel tends to waver a little bit. And I thought those bits of the issue actually were really, really good. Despite my, my criticism of when uh, St. Dumas appears... That actually was probably my favorite art panel. I really did like the way that that was framed and and the imagery that, that kind of came out of it with this big hulking, what looks like a demon, but claims to be a saint, uh, over Azrael and, and tempting him with all those things that theoretically he should want. And looking at it through kind of the way you framed it, John, this this issue... As character growth for Azrael, you're right. Sometimes I forget where where he is in his character development, and he's still so new, and he's just getting used to not being really under under Batman anymore. Even though he's referred to it, I think as a minion or an underling or something, some demeaning term. He's still getting used to being a hero in his own right and trying to figure out what those right decisions are to make. Because he clearly felt guilty for hurting those guys at the very start of the book. But in reality, he he may not have had another choice. Okay, so we will continue on with Legends of the Dark Knight, number 122. Batman finds lights on in Chinatown and ponders how that could be possible since the power station was destroyed in a battle with Mr. Freeze. It turns out to be an underground strip club slash vice area. When Batman goes to investigate a little further, he finds an alleyway full of recently dead uh, gang members being scavenged by dogs. He sees one has survived and calls Lynx out. She explains the new mergers of different gangs on the street, and Batman thanks them for doing his job for him, thinning their ranks out. Lynx and Batman fight. When he emerges victorious, he shows her the lights and asks if she never stopped to consider where the electricity comes from. He shows her. Illegal immigrants who are trapped there have been forced to pedal on stationary bikes while the energy they created was converted to electricity. They happen to be watching as a young child gets punished for trying to tend to her infirmed grandfather. Lynx immediately agrees to a limited partnership and explains why she will not stand to see this particular injustice. We learn her own mother was exploited in a sweatshop as an illegal immigrant in France, and she died because of her poor working conditions and no access to medicine. Lynx turned to petty crime and then one day pickpocketed the wrong individual. She ended up being taken in by Whitesnake. 
Batman and Lynx form their alliance, and as they are about to take action, realize that the action has come to them. This issue actually really irritated me for about the first half of it. There was just an incredible pompousness of the writing uh, for the first half. I mean, I I consider myself a well-read person, but I imagine that the average maybe 13 to 15-year-old reading this might have had a lot of difficulty with some of Batman's inner monologue. Like, I just, it seemed so incredibly out of place with what what I was seeing on the page that to me there, there was a lot of disconnect there. That being said, the story that they're going with uh, in this issue, the idea that, you know, electricity is a commodity or it has become a commodity that people are willing to pay incredibly high rates for. And that, you know, the people, people that are forced to pay the ultimate price for that are people that don't have any, any other recourse that they can seek out. I thought the parallels were really nice between Lynx and what was currently going on. Obviously her backstory being explained there does, does shine a different light on the character. Um, So I did enjoy this issue with the exception of the inner monologue in the first half. I just, I thought that was incredibly awful, horribly written. There is a very, pompous way of writing I think that really it's unnecessary and there's a lot of when it comes to the dialogue there's a lot of showboating and over the top kind of almost 1960s television puns where Batman throws her in the air and and then she goes, oh, I can land on my feet, and you're the one that's going to get hurt, and then throws a knife at him. And it just, it, it felt really grating and unnecessary. And it kind of felt like a really, they were trying to convey the arrogance of the character, but I didn't feel like the the character was arrogant in the way that a gang lord or Crime Lord would be, that it was just an attempt at doing witty puns. And as well, I felt Batman comes across as a massive know-it-all. And there's a lot of what's kind of been described as Basil exposition. So it's lots of over-the-top, unnecessary explanation. And again, I felt that come all the way through it felt very unnecessarily wordy again for example he batman catches her fist and goes but i outweigh you by 70 pounds and my fist has twice the mass of yours simple physics no contest hence why i win aha and you're like well just catch her fist and then hit her in the face we don't need the writing for that we just that's all we need to know And it just came across as these characters being unnecessarily arrogant and over the top. It did make me laugh how, as well, the the artwork isn't particularly great, I don't think. I think Batman looks okay. The issue that I have with it is Lynx. I'm not entirely, entirely sure how she's managed to do it, but 
very conveniently, her entire costume has managed to rip right down the centre. And, of course, what do we get? Some kind of action shot with her bra hanging halfway out for no apparently good reason. And I felt, again, that was just completely unnecessary cheesecake. Okay, fine, show that she's been knocked around a bit, but why is she, you know, missing half her costume? There's inconsistency as well with that. In one shot, um, when we see Batman first discover Lynx, in fact, her sleeve is entirely intact and absolutely fine on her arm. And then, all of a sudden, it completely disappears. I have no idea where it goes. It just wanders off. And that, that again, kind of really bugged me throughout the issue. I thought the flashback was was nice, actually, when they saw that it was a sweatshop and that they were forcing people who'd obviously not been able to pay debts or had gotten into debt with them to produce this electricity and that it resonated with Lynx and we got that emotional reaction, um, that whole, do you know what, stuff the plan, this this really reminds me of my char- horrible, horrible childhood and I want to stop it, I want to stop it now and I want to uh, attack people. And I thought actually that was quite a nice bit of storytelling. But other than that, I just, I found the issue quite grating all the way through. And it didn't really, to be honest, get much better at any point, to be honest. The one thing about the flashback that I really enjoyed was the contrast between the two art styles that were used there. Well, not necessarily styles, but the coloring, the fact that this memory that was very clearly a painful memory for Lynx to bring up was all in black and white and very softly drawn. And almost looked like it was drawn a little bit through the eyes of a child, because that's how she would have been remembering it. I thought that was a really great bit of art in this. And I liked that portion of the story, because that's really where we get everyone stops showboating, and she's just she's telling this horrible story about where she comes from. I do think that I, I'm really tired of Bruce saying lots of people have terrible childhoods. They don't become criminals. Well, Bruce, you know what? You were a billionaire. You were a billionaire seven-year-old orphan. Lynx was alone in a country where she probably didn't even speak the language. She's lucky she's alive. So I'm not saying you have to give her sympathy and maybe, you know, a nice hug and a card once a year, but maybe just realize that not everybody had the advantage that you did just once that's i'm just asking for it once so this story continues in shadow of the bat number 90 picking up where legends left off the little girl from the previous issue is about to receive her punishment and batman and lynx have been surrounded when Jade-Faced Wu calls Lynx a hypocrite because the ghost dragons victimized the Chinese as well, Batman says she and her men were criminals and this gang is an affront to humanity. Wu laughs at, at the very idea of Batman splitting hairs about villainy to the point that he's siding with Lynx, but quickly stops laughing and orders them killed. We have a full page of puns, then a full page of Batman saying the gangs only care about violence. The two of them continue to fight 
I pointed those out for a reason. The two of them continue to fight before Lynx realizes they need to take the fight to their leader. As they begin to fight their way in, the little girl watches in amazement. The thugs mistakenly believe they can get Lynx easier because she's only a girl. She takes particular offense to that. Wu and Lynx battle it out. Lynx is beginning to lose when Batman gets her out of there. The little girl listens to the criminals talk about her people, her anger growing. Lynx is taken to an herbalist and begins recovering. Rather than finish recovering, she insists on going back to rescue the girl. Batman comes along and they find Wu dead. Upon further investigation, they discover that the slaves have risen up, inspired by Mei, the little girl. She killed Wu and called her fellow slaves to arms, having been impressed by Lynx. Lynx finds out that Mei was killed as a result. She wonders if that's what being a hero means, and she and Batman discuss it for a little bit. The issue ends with Bane mixing chemicals and laughing about the lack of security. This story, as much as I loved, just absolutely loved the second half, that first half to me felt so stretched. The puns that cover full page up, the very next page was Batman with a one word per panel way of doing dialogue, which absolutely drives me nuts. It, it irritated me so much that it almost makes me think less of the second half of this story. That being said, I thought this was a really great conclusion uh, to this story, and I really did... I loved the discussion that Lynx and Batman had where Lynx realizes that, you know, she inspired me and she got her to stand up and to, to defend herself, but it got her killed. Um, and she, when she asks Batman if, if that's what being a hero is and he says, no, you know, I'm not a hero. I'm a detective. I'm a crime fighter. Hero is what people call you. It's not what you call yourself. And and the way that Lynx just kind of seems so defeated by the idea that that people die because of this. I, I loved the ending because in real life there's very rarely happy endings and I love that Batman is always there to remind me of that. That this was this was really the only the only outcome possible. I thought the ending with the death of my was was the best bet out of this issue. The rest of it was really, really boring. Like you, Melinda, I just I found the puns they didn't work in the first issue and they definitely, definitely, definitely didn't work here. And they do just try and stretch this issue and to be honest this entire storyline I feel could be told in one issue and everything condensed down from this unnecessary two issue storyline and I found it really really grating I think the the base stereotype that they broke this girl down into we I felt that the the stereotyping that they they did to try and get my to really appear to be inspired by going oh well these men just say that she is a girl and but she shows them that she is not a girl by by just beating them up I thought it was a really simplistic stereotype 
there is, and granted I'm a guy saying this, so I've, I'm sure that there'll be some people just going, no. The women, especially little girls, don't just have to be inspired by other women. Yes, it, it does help, and it shows that you know, that other people are able to do it as well and, and to bring them on. But it's not all down to just your gender. It's about how you act, what you do, what kind of person you are and how inspiring as a person you can be rather than, oh, well, the only way that we can get women to be more inspired by stuff is by only ever showing them other women doing it and by having these really... I would do always I, like... Do you want me to give you a note here, John? Yes, yeah. <laughs> okay. First of all, I, I don't know how much of that you're going to choose to keep in there or not, maybe all of it. Um, I think one of the reasons that it was shown the way it was is May is a little Chinese girl, Lynx is an older Chinese woman. Unfortunately, representation is such that May may never have seen a woman that she could theoretically grow up to be doing anything like this, doing anything impressive. And if that was her first experience, I can absolutely understand that look of just complete awe and worship that she shows when Lynx is there. Um, yeah, I do think they were 100% way too ham-fisted with the, uh, oh, well, she's just a girl, we can beat her, blah, blah, blah. I honestly don't think that was, I don't think that was what was as driving to May as the fact that it was a girl that she could theoretically grow up to be standing up to the people that were hurting her. I think that was more important to her than just the fact that it was a girl. Um, it, yeah, no, uh, sorry, um, perhaps I've, I've, think I've probably phrased it really badly. That's not what I have the issue with. The issue is with the ham-fistedness of... Oh, no, the ham-fistedness of the, of the bad guys, the baddies, for lack of a better term, saying, oh, well, you know, get her first, she'll be easier to get because she's a girl. While they, while in reality, if were that to happen, they might not say that out Absolutely what they would think. I mean, yeah, she is a crime lord, but the other one's Batman. And to the common thug on the street, you know you can potentially, there's a possibility to beat a crime lord. Batman hasn't really been defeated, ever. So I I think that, you know, what they're saying may not have been necessarily accurate to what they would have been thinking, but their move to go for not Batman was definitely the move that any of them would have made. I just think that the writers, like you said, were laying it on really thick when they decided to add in the dialogue about get her first. Yeah, and that is what brings it down for me, in that they do just ham fist it up completely it, it, you know don't get me wrong I'm not saying that 
I don't have a problem with the whole my looking at links and seeing her as a role model and going, Jot, this is a strong woman who's who's standing up for me. You know, that's her leading as I said when I made the first made the point, that's her leading by inspiration. The whole ham fistedness I have the issue with is the dialogue. Is the whole Well, you know, it's go for yeah. her. She's only a girl. I just think that that if they'd gone go for her, she's not Batman. <laughs> that that you know that's fine. But the whole oh well, she's only a girl. <laughs> Let's go punch her instead. Just came across as more unnecessary basil exposition and made it seem clunkier and you could tell that this was a guy's interpretation of how he feels that little girls identify with or should be sort of identifying with with strong female not strong female with female role models so I hate putting the word strong female so it, it makes no sense. Why, why do they? Why are they being strong? It, you know, identifies with female role models, and I felt that it was unnecessary. I can't imagine that Gail Simone or um, any of the female. That's really awkward that you can only think of one female writer Kelly, in the entire. Kelly DC. Sue DeConnick. Oh, yes. Never yeah. mind. Kelly DeConnick and Gail Simone, I don't think that's the way that they would have written how my saw them. Now, I could be completely wrong. And frankly, if you want to tell me that I'm wrong, you're more than welcome to, because, you know, it's it's a way of learning and of getting these things right. And it's very important that we do get these things right. And I do think that there needs better female heroes and characters in in the DC universe, and I think Lynx is a good one for that, but I think they need to be they need to be written correctly, and they certainly don't need to be written in such a ham-fisted, over-the-top this, I am, this is how I think it should be and I realise that I've just spent ten minutes lecturing about that, and it makes probably does make me a massive hypocrite because of the way that I'm going, oh, well, men shouldn't lecture women about how to approach female um, role models, and I've just lectured everybody about how, how men shouldn't approach female role models, but... I, I feel like somewhere Dawn is really proud. <laughs> um, you know... I, that that's my issue with it, and that's where I have the problem with it. But I did think it was nice. Moving on, moving on from that, I did think it was nice that we saw the consequences of my trying to to copy Links's way and leading a, a revolt and trying to to do what. Links did, and the 
consequences of that. And they didn't shy away from the fact that potentially some of these people can and probably do die. And it, it, that I felt was, was really well handled, especially at the end, uh, where she sees the funeral and the old man says, well, you know, she copied you and she tried to be you and she blames herself. And she had that moment of going, I've inspired this person, you know, that excitement, that joy of going, I've inspired this person and they want to be like me. And now it's all gone because that action that I led them to has had horrible consequences. And I I thought that was that was perhaps the best bit in the entire issue. What I really wondered about at that particular moment was she's having this discussion with Batman um, and she's coming to these realizations. And I, I could not help but wonder if Batman at that point was thinking about the people that have been injured or killed under his sort of under his umbrella of protection, like in particular Jason Todd, because, you know, this was a very young person with their entire life in front of them. And Lynx obviously feels just horrible about it. But Batman doesn't really show that. And it makes me wonder what the writers were picturing going on in his head for this. Or if they were picturing anything going on at all. I I thought that was a very interesting parallel between Lynx and Batman. That they both experienced that type of loss and and that type of blaming it on themselves. Yeah, I certainly felt that was exactly what the writers were were getting at, that Batman does have a a history of inspiring characters and and people to do to follow in his footsteps and that's had for some people unintended consequences like Jason Todd's death. And I certainly think that that was what they were going for when they when they wrote that section. And you see from his end dialogue that he does certainly still feel it. He doesn't describe himself as a hero. He just sees himself as, you know, a crime fighter and a detective. He's not a hero because of the things that he's done before and because of what's happened to to people that he's worked with and that they have have died and he carries that burden with him. Uh, and I feel like I felt that at the end of this issue, definitely. Moving into Batman issue 570, Harley Quinn and Joker take over an apartment building in Gotham. Joker clears out the lobby by killing most people and rescuing one cartoonist, while Harley goes to loot the upper floors, getting caught up in reading a book about how to get a man to marry you. In her own twisted way, she's broken every one of the rules listed in the book. She decides the first step is getting her own place. How fortunate. There's a nice apartment just waiting for her. We cut to Batman and Oracle talking about the Joker's most recent move and how Harley might be on the verge of leaving him. As people finally begin getting over their fear of the Joker and buying the items the Joker has in the building he took over, the Joker begins working on winning Harley Quinn back. The former 
owners of the building, decide to take it back over. So Harley jumps from the balcony to join the fray, ending up saving Josh the cartoonist's life. Joker ends up gassing the remaining fighters while dangling from a bungee cord. Later, Joker complains about how Batman is just the worst, and Harley suggests an election so people can freely choose to be run by Joker. She and Josh brainstorm a few ideas, such as running against a pig, before she runs off to bed. Joker threatens to kill Josh the cartoonist if he finds out there's anything going on between him and Harley. The Joker decides to have Josh the cartoonist do the posters for the election, which Huntress stumbles across the next day. We find out that Joker will be running against none other than Billy the Pig Petite. This was, I assume this was meant to be comic relief in the midst of a big storyline that was just so, so heavy and depressing. That's the only thing I can come up with because this story was just so bizarre. A lot of it focused on Harley Quinn and Joker's love life. And I, I don't really know what to say other than that. That's why I really like this issue, because of the relationship um, and the work that it does between the Joker and Harley. You know, I know there's been stories um, that have done it, covered that before, and most notably, obviously, Mad Love, which covers the start of the relationship between the two but I feel that this kind of delved into what the two of them meant to each other and actually the Joker is is in a very odd sense of the way quite childlike so when he's got something he's not that interested and it's kind of just there and it's something that he'll be interested in a little bit occasionally, but when it's not there or when it's potentially going to go away, then all of a sudden he he needs it. And this, to me, also showed how much Joker actually needs Harley. And as a double act, they work together. Um, they work together to come up with the ideas and Harley understands the Joker and what kind of ideas that the Joker really goes for. Also as well, this obviously came when Harley Quinn had been introduced in the animated series under Paul Dini and they were establishing the relationship. So there was a lot of desire within the comics to see that kind of crossover between the two and to see that relationship so I feel that's really why it was written to be honest I think the real weak link in all of this is Josh he seems to be there much more as a plot device to establish that Harley and Joker do actually care about each other and the Joker is very jealous and protective of Harley and if anyone wants to go out with her then that becomes an issue. Obviously in the New 52 she's now going out with with Deadshot um, which is 
uh, obviously a change in direction for the character, but here it's very obvious that there's that relationship. And I feel Josh is the stooge in the middle to get that. And he seems very one-dimensional. Well, there's definitely a reason I consistently refer to him as Josh the cartoonist, because I feel like without consistently reminding myself uh, even when I was just writing up the summary, without consistently reminding myself of who Josh was, I felt like if I went back to read this, even a few hours later, I was going to be like, who's Josh? Why do I keep talking about him? I would say my favorite part is when Harley probably, probably when Harley stumbles onto the 27th floor and she's like, well, guess the looters only went up to 26. Ooh. Like, aromatherapy candles. Oh, and the the book that is very clearly meant to be a ripoff of the book called The Rules, How to Win a Guy in However Long. Like this I recognize some of these from that book. Not that I've read that book, but we all like to make fun of it at the store. But I just thought that that was a really nice bit of at the time what was very current pop culture pop culture referencing, um, especially because Harley herself was a pop culture reference. You know, she was coming over from the animated series and knowing that that was around the time that she was introduced there and there was a lot of desire for the crossover. These two issues now irritate me less because they probably were under tremendous pressure to get her into the comics and to figure out a way to incorporate her into there. So that makes these comics feel less like outliers but yes you're you're very aware the entire time that that josh is a plot device um particularly when the joker decides to threaten him but i liked the idea of the election and i like that i like that joker does sort of from time to time realize how much he relies on harley now that she is no longer at his beck and call so I I did enjoy this issue. I just I was so confused by its presence in this big story. So thank you, John, for giving me a bit of context to place it in. I I liked the art for this story. Uh, it wasn't anything special, but you did you do see that Batman and Detective Comics, because they are the bigger titles primarily have the uh, the better artists, and it definitely shows in this, this issue. Out of all the art that we've, we've seen through the the issues, this is probably my favourite. I think the Joker's a little bit too pointy-faced for my liking. I prefer the Joker when he's a bit, a bit rounder. I mean, it, it does uh, sort of go back to that 1960s, um, Joker look. He's kind of, he almost kind of reminds me of sort of one of those uh, sort of British indie songwriters that were quite popular at the time. That kind of, and also uh, uh, very much like the sort of pop punk that was going around at the time as well, like Blink 182 and Green Day and Sorry, you're going to say something. Yeah, some forty-one. Yes. Uh, yeah. Glory, good Charlotte. Yes, that kind of skater pop punk. He's very much got that look 
that was very popular at the time and it does I'm not going to lie look a little bit dated now um, you kind of look at it and go uh, mm, not not so sure about it now but it is by far but probably the better best bit of artwork out of all the issues I would definitely definitely agree with that and so that leads us into our final book, uh, Detective Comics 737. In the campaign offices of the Joker, everything's going hunky-dory except that Harley turns Mr. J down for a date, still following the rules of the book. In a discussion with Josh the cartoonist, Joker bemoans his pathetic opposition, who definitely does not know he's actually running in this election. Fortunately, Huntress breaks the news to him in the next scene. Petite tells Huntress to follow Harley. Back at the campaign headquarters, Josh the cartoonist discusses voter turnout with the Joker, who decides that a literal vote or die is the way to go. Then he muses on his lovely Harley. Josh the cartoonist goes upstairs to see if Harley needs anything, ends up hitting on her, even though she spurns his advances. Joker sees and decides to show Josh the cartoonist how to mix up a killer bomb. Huntress goes to speak to Harley, but they end up fighting. She escapes, but she realizes Joker is in trouble. Joker blows Josh the cartoonist up, and Harley comes bounding around the corner, proclaiming her love for him. Balance is restored, and Batman gets the update from Oracle. This issue, it's a lot like the last one in that things are very funny, there's a lot of the relationship between Joker and Harley Quinn and, you know, further to what John was talking about with the last issue, here's where Harley realizes how much she cares for the Joker as if she didn't, you know, already know. Um, but she realizes that she doesn't want to play games with him because she loves him. And she didn't realize that until she thought he was going to be gone forever Poor Josh, the cartoonist, did end up splattered all over nearby buildings, and the election didn't end up happening, but I don't think anyone really suspected that it was going to happen. But I thought it was interesting the way that this whole story played out and then the whole way it was relayed to Batman very much left out. Well, it didn't leave out. Oracle tried to include the human element, and he was just very Sergeant Joe Friday. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. But this this was a cute ending to the previous story, despite, you know, Josh the Cartoonist dying. Really no bearing on No Man's Land or or no no appreciable bearing on what's happening in No Man's Land. We don't know if this stuff might come up later on. But for now it just seems like a little Joker and Harley love story. Yeah. Uh, I think again this is in a storyline that really could have been condensed into one and that would have made it a great storyline. I think stretching it out of two issues you do start to like the storyline featuring links that actually they're just they're padding now. You get more stuff with Harley's book The Code and how to entice men by doing various things and it serves to 
reintroduce Huntress and show that she's still around and that that's something that Batman's going to have to deal with in later issues. The inclusion of uh, of Billy Pier as well, when he just, he turns up and he's just really nonplussed, like, oh, is the Joker framing me for an election? Oh, right, okay, that, that's very interesting. Uh, well, you go and look over there and see what's going on, but I really, I don't care. It seemed a bit, a bit out of character, considering he's been display, been portrayed in previous issues as very hardline and very, this is how we do it and this is how we treat the criminals, a very, for want of a better word, conservative. And I can't imagine that the way that he's portrayed, he would appreciate Joker mocking democracy. He seems like a stereotype of a Republican that, although isn't true, is to a large extent how Republicans are seen outside of America as very pro-death penalty, woo USA, the USA is the defender and founder of democracy, and he's, uh, to an extent, I think, a figure of fun, but how the nonplus way he reacts doesn't seem very in-character or particularly worthy of inclusion, to be honest. So I found that quite disappointing. We get the inevitable death of Josh the cartoonist, which I think we all saw a mile away. So that wasn't really a surprise. My my only surprise was, frankly, the size of the explosion, which was huge. We cut to it, it's done massive damage, but the Joker doesn't appear to have moved at all from that explosion, which I thought was probably a little bit of poor inconsistency, though I'm sure you could really fill the gap. I would be interested to get your point of view, actually, on this whole concept of Harley Quinn following the code and trying to get a man to uh, find her attractive by doing all these certain actions, considering we've just viewed a couple of issues which, again, dealt with the concept of uh, female roles and characterization and how women are viewed by by girls and things like that. Did you feel that this kind of linked to that and was a bit more an anti kind of anti these books or do you feel that it was a bit of the word I'm looking for kind of Nonsense, almost. I think that's the best way to describe it. Uh, do do I personally think that they're nonsense? No, um, as in, as in, sort of how do, how this do, is portrayed. Yes, yeah. Harley Quinn is an academic, 
at, at the core of her, I, I don't think anyone would argue that someone who became a psychiatrist was not an academic. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense for Harley Quinn in, in her twisted mind to say, oh, this is my objective. Oh, there's a book that will help me meet my objective. I should read and put into use the principles outlined in this book. So I think from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense. I think this was just a really, really kind of poking fun at all those books. And there's so many of them. So, I mean, I I singled one out because I'm fairly certain that's the one this was based on. But I think what was more damaging is you had a girl who lived in a really nice apartment who clearly had a life of her own. It was shown that she had to have been reading that. So I think that was maybe a bit more upsetting than Harley taking to this book. Um, because Harley, you can you can kind of logic away that. But this unseen character, we don't really know anything about her aside from the fact that she had a really nice apartment in a quake-proof building with aromatherapy candles. She had a great relationship with her father, or theoretically a great relationship with her father, and yet she had a book like this laying around. So was the writer trying to say that she didn't feel complete because she didn't, she wasn't married? Was the writer trying to say there was something wrong with her choosing to live her life like that? Like that's what I think was more upsetting than Harley taking this book and executing all of the rules with just disastrous results for Josh, the cartoonist. That's quite interesting because I, I must admit, I'm, I did gloss over that, but now that you've kind of pointed that out, that is quite an interesting thought whether the writer was suggesting that suggesting that or whether it was And it could a have it, it could have been in the writer's mind just a throwaway joke, which it so often is. But the fact is like that that is where your mind went to that is what you went to for something funny no that that's actually something that that we need to talk about like that kind of thing so and i mean it, this is not necessarily the form in which to do it but that's that was what i took away from from this self-help book no i can appreciate that because those self-help books do i mean they're primarily always aimed at at women and they do seem to suggest that without somebody to marry, you're somehow not complete. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do. There is that is just a worrying <laughs> preposition. Full stop. That until you get married, your life is somehow empty and hollow. And yeah, whether they are taking a swing at that as a complete joke or whether that's something that they honestly think I think would be interesting to have a conversation with the writer about and and see what they intended. It would be interesting to ask the writer if, if that is genuinely what he thinks that that character that is not ever even seen really thinks, you know, like, do they think that that's what that character wants? Does the writer think, oh, well, she's got all this, but not a man. I know what she needs. So, like, that 
that's where my issues with it come from. Well, I was just going to say also as well, actually, you can kind of pick those tones up in relation to Harley Quinn as well. There's a suggestion that she isn't complete without the Joker. And Mm -hmm. is there a... Is there that suggestion that she isn't complete without a man, or is that much more her character? Well, I think it's more her character, but... I I view that one as twofold. Because Josh initially approaches her, and he's like, you need a boyfriend, not you should have a boyfriend or you're, you're an awesome girl. And, and I think that you deserve to be dating someone or so you need a boyfriend. And then after she rejects his advances immediately, immediately she goes running off to the Joker as if she's not complete without having that man in her life. As if she's realized, Oh, this whole you know time I've been following the rules, I've been on my own. It's been terrible. I've been miserable. And I really do love Mr. J. So those those are two things that, I mean, they put into Harley's character, and they are in character for her. But they're worrying that someone has written, like, Harley is, is a fictional cre- character. Someone created her. Someone gave her all of these attributes and her life aspirations and things like that. So these are qualities that were assigned to her by someone. And that's also worrisome. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I think it would be interesting to sit down and actively go through Harley Quinn's character and see whether she's a great... I mean, she's not obviously not role model for, for anybody, but whether there is kind of a... And whether it's with women in general in the DC universe, of whether there is kind of... You look at it and just go, I'm not sure that's what you really want to portray. And whether actually that makes her an integral... That's an integral part of her character, or whether it's slightly worrying again we had some really great art but like we said detective comics and batman generally have the stronger artists because they are the bigger selling books but this did have joker with like just the longest jaw he had the horsiest face in this issue i could not could not really get over that but no no standout pop-up panels that were just that kind of blew me away. I I don't think the art was anything super special, but it was definitely of a higher quality than Legends of the Dark Knight and Shadow of the Bat. He, his jaw has got a lot, lot longer, and he's got more and more gaunt. It just is it's looking weirder and weirder. And as I pointed out, the size of the explosion as well, and the damage it does, and then the fact that the Joker's quite clearly was stood next to it and absolutely fine, did completely baffle me. But I don't think it was awful. I think where there were flaws, I think, came with Josh. But I think that was more characterization on Josh in that he's he appears to be fairly vacant. 
<laughs> without mincing my words. I mean, there's nothing going on upstairs in his head. Well, he was so generic that I I did not realize this, but I could not pick him out until I realized, oh, right, the Joker gave him a flower. Let's look for the flower when I'm looking for Josh the cartoonist. Like, yeah. That was how generic. Yes, yeah. He is, he's henchman number five of ten. And, yeah, he's just... I mean, there's not a lot going on uh, with his facial expressions and things like that. He's... If you put him in the background... He'd be like one of those Simpsons characters that had clearly died, but somehow they've put him in the background. You wouldn't notice. So I thought that was that was fair a flaw on that part, but I think it was limited by the character. And you could, to be honest, actually argue that his lack of distinctiveness is much more to do with his character. But you know, it was it was average artwork. So for Asriel fifty eight, I thought. The art was fairly strong. I'm going to give that a three and a half out of five. And with the new context for the story, I will give that a three out of five. So six and a half out of ten. So the artwork I thought was was good. That was a three and a half out of five. I particularly liked the arrival of uh, Saint Dumas. I thought that bit of artwork was particularly very good. The storyline, it does further his character, and if you're a fan of Asriel, then I, I would recommend picking this up. I think, really, as, as an issue in No Man's Land, it kind of ties up the storyline that was going through for Asriel and what was happening. So it's not really an essential read unless you're a fan of Asriel, to be honest. So I would give that three out of five, which gives it a total of six and a half out of ten. So for those of you keeping score at home, that averages out to 3.25 out of five batarangs. Legends of the Dark Knight 122. This one, because we had that hugely pompous first half of the story, um, and because this one was so stretched, like this one in particular was so stretched out, I am going to give the story a one and a half out of five batarangs. And for the art, just because I really did enjoy the way that they contrasted between the flashback and the main story, and I loved the style of the flashback so much, I will give that a three and a half out of five for a total of five out of ten. For me, I thought that the story got slightly better as we went through, so I'm not going to be as harsh, and I'm going to give it two out of five. I do agree, I think the pomposity was uh, ridiculous, and I think some of the characterization was not great. I didn't enjoy the artwork. I thought the flashback was perhaps the best thing in it. And when you're talking about two pages out of a 25-30 page comic, I don't think that reflects very well. Uh, I particularly disliked Lynx's costume um, and the cheesecake and the art inconsistencies that do run through it. So I'm going to give it one out of five, which gives it a total of three.
That gives it a total of two out of five Batarangs. Shadow of the Bat, volume or issue 90. Now, because this had so much filler, but this was where I really grew to enjoy the storyline, particularly the ending. I feel that the ending was strong enough to raise the rest of this issue to a four out of five Batarangs for story. However, the art on this one didn't floor me in any way, so I will give that a two out of five Batarangs for a total of six out of ten. I didn't particularly enjoy the storyline. I still have issues with the way that they did the female role models. Uh, I thought that the ending was was very strong, and that was a very nice way of ending it, but it's, it's brought down by the way that they treat the female characters, and it's brought down by the way that they just padded this with nonsense filler and unnecessary dialogue. Uh, so I'm only going to give this two out of five. The artwork, again, there are inconsistencies all the way through, in particular holes in Maya's jumper that appear to be completely... suggest that somehow they've been ripped and torn, yet you can see the jumper underneath. And I just thought that was really, really bad art colouring... I didn't think it was overly terrible, but I didn't think it was great either. So I'm going to give that also two out of five, giving it a total of four out of ten. All right, which gives us a dead even two and a half out of five batterings for Shadow of the Bat number 90. Batman 570. (laughs) The art was really great in this one. Uh, it was probably the nicest drawn book, so I'll give that four out of five for art. Story, just because, just because it, it didn't really bear relevance on No Man's Land. Really, ultimately, it didn't affect No Man's Land. I'm gonna give it two and a half out of five because I thought it was somewhat well written very incongruent with the rest of the story um, and just some of the problems that John and I discussed with it. So uh, two and a half out of five for that for a total of six and a half out of ten. I enjoyed the artwork. I thought it was very good. There were some slight flaws with it, but I think there are always flaws with any piece of artwork. It's never going to be perfect. So I'm going to give that three and a half out of five. The storyline, I do agree, I think there are some issues, but I didn't have as much of an issue with the way that Harley was portrayed as I think I did with with Lynx and Maya. I think to an extent that they're kind of restricted by how the character's been developed, especially by Paul Dini and the role that she kind of plays within that So I'm going to give that three out of five, and that gives it a total of six and a half out of ten. That gives us 3.25 out of five Batarangs for Batman 
570. Detective Comics 737. The art was not quite as good as what was going on in Batman. So I will give that a 3 out of 5 Batarangs. And because of, again, just specific to this story, though, uh, some of the inconsistencies uh, with Billy Petit's character and with just the overall, I think, flow of this issue, I'm going to give it two and a half out of five Batarangs for a total of five and a half out of ten Batarangs. I didn't think the art was terrible. I didn't think it was particularly standout. I think, again, there were flaws within it, such as the explosion. Also, the Joker's incredibly long face. It didn't really suit. And although it had looked okay in the previous issues, I felt in this issue that it really started to become an exaggeration and a caricature that I didn't really enjoy. So I'm going to give this three out of five for the artwork. I think the story was, again, good. I do think that this is a story that they could have condensed into one issue, but it kind of moves along at a nice pace, and it felt like it was a bit of light-hearted relief, and also an exploration of the Joker and Harley's relationship. So for that, I'm going to give it three and a half out of five, giving it a total of uh, six and a half out of ten. All right, so that gives us a very average three out of five batterings for Detective Comics 737. So those are all the issues for this episode if you've got any thoughts or opinions that you'd like to share if you think that uh, that actually harley quinn's character is uh, an all right uh, portrayal of women or whether you think that i was wrong over links and myers relationship and actually how they portrayed was perfectly acceptable do let us know leave a comment on the new revamped batmanuniverse.net you can leave your comments underneath the podcast on the main website and we will reply on that and we'll also read your comments out as well it'd be great to know what you guys think of these issues and of any upcoming issues as well so do get writing and commenting on that Next episode, we're going to have a slightly shortened episode. We're going to be covering four issues, and then we'll be covering a final four to take us to the end of Batman No Man's Land Volume 3. So next episode, we will be covering Batman Legends of the Dark Knight 1, 2, 3, Batman Shadow of the Bat 91, Batman 571, and Detective Comics 738. So do go and pick those issues up. You can, of course, get them in the No Man's Land Volume 3, which is well worth picking up. And also those issues are available online. So take a look, leave a review, as I said, underneath this podcast, and we'll read it out next week.
So that's everything for this episode. I've been your host, John. Thank you very much for listening. And you have also been listening to... Melinda. And we hope to entertain you again next time. And remember, ladies and gentlemen, from the code number 11, only accept dates made three or more days in advance. We'll see you guys next time. Does that mean that when we're organizing this podcast, I have to give you advance notice of three or more days? Yeah. John, what kind of hussy do you think I am? <laughs>